This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of American Enough is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Just this past week, hundreds of thousands of students at American public schools decided to walk out of their classrooms, principally in protest of the gun violence that's been ravaging far too many communities across the country, but also principally because students are taking a stand and not only having their voices heard, but demanding more from the adults and the elected representatives that govern the communities around them. But it's easy to sometimes reduce what's been happening across the campuses of our public schools as just a matter of politics. All too often, the headlines swirling and shaping the identity of public schools have been fixated on what will or will not happen with gun control, will teachers be or not be armed, or what Secretary of Education under Donald Trump, Betsy DeVos, did or did not say. But the identity of schools is really much bigger than that. When we talk about school safety, we're also talking about school funding. When we talk about the equipping of, of students and teachers to be effective advocates on their campus, we're also talking about digital literacy and informational literacy in the era of the internet and fake news. When we talk about public schools, we're talking about not just the voice of how that school is funded, but we're also talking about how the views of teachers and administrators are represented in the same way that students and their needs are represented and tackled. That's why today on American Enough, we examine the identity of public schools and in particular examining them through the lens of how a view of a one teacher might change in light of a tragedy like Parkland but how those views and those values and that identity of representing the needs of the students in their classroom drastically get impacted by a tragedy, but extend far beyond just the contours of that tragedy. This is American Enough, and with us is Alex Heron. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. These days, it's all too often to think about the identity of a public school in America as a petri dish of political debate, whether it's debating a transgender bathroom bill in North Carolina or other states in the country, or whether it's contesting the use of guns on campus in light of recent tragedies and tragedies that strike far too often at home among our sisters, our brothers, and now every day, seemingly our children. The identity of schools extends far beyond that. Sure, many may consider it a political football to sift through the policies and choices that can help safeguard the future values and direction and safety of our kids day to day, and that should not be overlooked or put to the side. But public schools have long been both the crown jewel of the American talent system as well as one of its most crippling approaches to diversifying that talent in the 21st century underfunding, under-resourced, and oftentimes in a more modern century, under-connected to what we now assume to be basic resources like wireless connectivity, have all too often plagued the nature, reach, and the ability to exceed and excel as a public school. But Alex Heron has a different view on that. 
Public schools have an opportunity to be temples in this country. They have the opportunity to not only train with rigor the future generations of America, but they also have a chance to engage uniquely the moment in time in which while the rest of the country wants to use public schools as an examination of our political discourse and debates, they also have a chance to shape the way that students view engaging in civic identity. Whether that means speaking up on issues that the students care about in terms of shaping their own destiny, or if it means connecting them to next generation resources like coding classes or opportunities to enhance their financial and digital literacy to prepare for a 21st century workforce, public schools really do have a new mandate in the 21st century landscape of America, and that is the underscoring of a chance to excel exceed and question the world around us in ways that we've never been connected to the rest of the world ever before. Alex Heron has had a unique opportunity to examine public schools all his own life. As a Pinellas County native in Florida with a background that makes him uniquely qualified to be a member of the Florida House and Florida State Legislature, Alex has actually declared his candidacy on the backs of a vision for what schools can really mean not only for the state of Florida, but really as a shining star for the rest of the country. Born in Seminole and having gone to Lakewood High School, he's been serving community projects around the growth, development, and excellence of not only children, but the community around him. As a Boy Scout engaged in service projects to a math teacher at Meadowlawn Middle School, He's also spent his time outside of his main role as a teacher coaching after-school programs, including Girls Who Code, and still coaches the school's volleyball team, ensuring that when it comes to investing in your community, your responsibility doesn't just end when the bell rings at 3 p.m. For Alex, it's about the entire ecosystem of how we encourage, motivate, and inspire students, whether they excel in the classroom or they excel in the gym courts. Alex has always stood by those in his community, and now he wants to stand up to make sure that they all have a voice in the way that elected representatives shape that identity of public schools. Currently, Alex is the technology integration coordinator with Pelinus County Schools, where he helps encourage and incorporate even more technology in classrooms to make sure that that identity of public schools isn't just about whether or not students and teachers should have to confront gun safety day to day, but is much more about how we make sure that classrooms are wired and are able to compete with a 21st century workforce while the rest of the world continues to invest in just those exact same measures. Alex, welcome to American Enough. Thank you so much for having me, Birkham. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being here. You know, we've been able to examine on this podcast a whole range of individuals that are increasingly seeking uh, a transition from their civilian lives, um, arguably, you know, a more comfortable life into the public limelight. And for you, you've always sort of been a public institution in, in, in some respects as a public school teacher. You know, you and I remember growing up in which when you see your your teacher out at a grocery store, for example, it's always a little jarring, like, oh, wow, they, they have real lives outside the real world. Um, so, so there's always a familiarity to a school teacher. But your sense of familiarity is now being uh, ratcheted up. Uh, you're taking your experience as an educator and you're taking your um, uh, observations as a citizen and a voter of how politics has been conducted in Florida and, and 
taking that to a point in which you're saying, you know, I want to stand up for a different direction for Florida schools and for the state of Florida in general. Can you walk us through a little bit about why you see your identity as a teacher as particularly fitting for a transition into political life and what really motivated uh, your your desire to, to get involved in this race for uh, the Florida's 66th district in the state assembly? Yeah, you know, I... I think there's a unique position as an educator to go and represent my community in the state house. A lot of those representatives, I think everyone has a perspective on education, but unless you've actually served in the classroom, it's hard to really know um, the effects these laws are having on our teachers. Uh, I, I'm really excited about it. I almost felt like I had an obligation uh, to do this. Uh, I've been thinking about doing it for a long time. And one of the hardest parts, like you mentioned before, is putting myself out there in an even more public way. Uh, as a teacher, I tried not to be political with my students. You know, you kind of told, especially as a math teacher, you know, you don't get into politics uh, really. Now I'm very obviously and very openly um, running as a Democrat and running uh, for office. And so all of my perspectives uh, are public now. And so it's just a different view, a uh, different way of thinking about where I stand as a person. But you know, I just I ran because I do believe I have an obligation to to give teachers a voice in our state legislature because uh, in Florida, it's our public schools have been under attack for a long time, and it's been hard uh, to be a teacher in Florida, and it's been getting worse as a public school teacher. So I just want to help uh, try and make a difference. And and what has that difference hinged upon for you? I mean, you mentioned that certainly as a math teacher, you don't um, you speak politics in the classroom, but but certainly as a math teacher, you would have observed politics from the administrative side of how that school or school district or those counties of schools were were governed. What did you start to see either by way of uh, decisions that were being made at the at the district and county level or perhaps de decisions that were made around funding and resources at the state level in Tallahassee that perhaps silently motivated you to to want to lean in here? I mean, I know you don't necessarily want to poke at the decisions made administratively because their hands are always tied by by resources, but what what was sort of the the catalyzing set of of observations that that kind of forced you to lean in here? Well, there were a couple of big bills that were passed in the Florida legislature. Last year, um, they passed one called Senate Bill 7069 that moved a lot of resources from public schools into uh, private and charter schools. And this is a, a movement Florida has been kind of pushing towards for a long time. And I think it hurts our public schools by moving those fundings out of our public school programs. Um, it uh, also provisions schools that are doing poorly to basically taken over um, by charter schools. Um, and so when that bill passed, and there's a lot more in that bill, but uh, when that bill passed, it kind of spurred me on to get off the sidelines and step up and, and say, hey, this is not right. Um, there's another one that just went through uh, in this legislative session that just ended that essentially decertifies teacher unions um, if they don't have, if they have less than 50% membership. And any, there, it's kind of a solution in search for a problem. Uh, no one was clamoring for this. I think it's mostly a political attack on public school unions. And the problem with the process in the state legislature is that this bill was, the decertif uh, decertification bill was a separate bill that was not popular and it wasn't going to pass. And so they took that and they tied it into a much larger spending bill that was then tied that to spending for all public schools. And uh, they essentially moved it that way. And now 
uh, in Florida, which is you know already a right-to-work state. You can't compel someone to be a member of the union. Um, they're trying to take away collective bargaining rights for our educators, which will eventually hurt teachers and make it harder to hire and retain good teachers here in Florida. Um, so those are the kinds of things that really got me up in arms. I was really upset about them. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that the teachers had a voice uh, the next time something like that came around. And it, when it comes to shaping that voice, it, it seems that all too often, um, not just in Florida, but across the country, that uh, teachers and the role of, of their voice, um, say politically, have always played a, a pretty unique role. On the one hand, um, a teacher's union or a block of teachers as a, a, a voting constituency have been very powerful in, in certain states like California, for example, which is obviously very different in its political makeup than Florida. But at, just as a straw man example, you have teachers unions that command great heft and authority in how a governor's race turns out, for example. In New Hampshire, you have a pretty strong teachers union as well that also um, at a minimum needs to be courted by candidates that are running for statewide office. Office. Uh, and you see a patchwork of, of this type of, of prowess among teachers across the country. And yet, time and time again, when it comes to state-based decision-making around resources um, or, frankly, even federal discussions around teachers and funding or school choice when it comes to private school vouchers or public school funding, it, it really does seem like teachers and schools get the raw end of the deal. On the one hand, you have elected officials and politicians saying that, you know, the, the children of today are the future of tomorrow, and thus we must invest in them. Um, and yet, uh, it, it seems that the choices that we're making to fund our military or the choices that we might be making to um, encourage aid overseas always seems to be um, the a higher priority than investing in our schools. I, I'm just curious, why do you see that? Uh, or why do you feel that that continues to be the case today? And does that in any way discourage you, even if you were to be elected and go to Tallahassee? Do you imagine that your voice on behalf of teachers already starts kind of, you know, four steps behind? Or do you have a different vision and, and ethos that you plan to bring to bear when it comes to really standing up and fighting for, for the investments our schools direly need? Well, I think it has to start with having respect for our teachers. Um, I think there is a lack of respect for what a classroom teacher has to do on a daily basis from a lot of people. And the situation nationwide in terms of state by state, uh, the power that teachers have is not universal. Uh, there are certain states, you know, Wisconsin and Florida, where um, the teachers have intentionally been, had their voices reduced at the statewide level. Um, and it's a difference of um, philosophy, but you know, it's, a, it's about priorities. And uh, you're right, when you talk about how we decide to budget our resources, we choose as a state, we've made the choice not to invest uh, in public schools fully. This budget that did, they just passed in Florida gives each uh, school district in Florida a 47 cents per student raise when you go through all of the different um, budgeting mechanics. Now in Pinellas County, that's barely enough to hire a single teacher, wow. much less keeping up with the costs of infrastructure, costs of uh, working on buildings, you know, fixing air conditioning over the summers, um, all these kinds of things. We just don't have the resources for it when you consider um, all the mandates that are coming from the state. And from a teacher, 
perspective because I've served as a classroom teacher. Um, my wife is still a classroom teacher. And just coming from that perspective, when you add a lot of stuff on top of a teacher's plate, the more you add to a teacher's plate, the less time they have to actually do their job. Um, you know, teachers don't really get into it for the money. <laughs> Uh, that's not, that's not why teachers go into it. They get into it because they want to educate. They want to, you know, mold young minds and help shape the future. That's why they do it. And, uh, you know, we need to attract people who have that passion and not drive them out. And again, I think that does come back to respect. Um, the actions, uh, legislatively that we take show a fundamental disrespect for teachers. And that's what I'd like to go, um, change from my perspective. Um, when I bring my perspective to ha Tallahassee is just Explain that. Explain what it's like in the classroom. Every time a new bill comes up, say, hey, this is how it's going to affect the teacher on their planning periods. Here's how this is going to be one more thing for the teacher to have to do uh, while they're you know, trying to get the kids in line to go to class, while they're trying to grade their papers because grades are due. Um, here's how it affects people on the ground floor, uh, which eventually affects students and, and their performance, too. So that's that's where I come from on that. And and in representing, you know, a broader educational ecosystem, you, of course, have the teacher's voice, which, which couldn't be more vital to the sort of success of students. But perhaps distinctly, you also have the student's voice and the student's voice in, in recent uh, weeks and, and months, um, you know, as tragic as it is to say, in Florida in particular, has, has hit a fever pitch. Um, student activism has been at an all-time high um, on the heels of, of the Parkland massacre. Um, there has been a sort of triggered response among students across the country, even my own high school, where I went to school in Fremont, California, Mission San Jose High School, which has, you know, um, to their own uh, fortune been shielded from any on-campus violence. Even they walked out last uh, Wednesday or Thursday and for the National Day of Action, joining several hundreds of thousands of students around the country itself as well. I'm curious what you've noticed about sort of the identity of um, public schools by way of the modern student. And by, by that, I mean, I mean, in your current role, um, where you're in integrating more technological infrastructure in the student experience, you know firsthand that students not only have a, a motivation to be more activist if they want to, but they have access to information um, in a way like never before. You or I, even uh, while on the high school debate team, if we wanted to search for something online, you know, Google was there, but it was fairly new to us. Uh, now you have a an entire um, worldwide web that's been indexed 10 times over, which means that someone that searches for something on Google is not only second nature, but the ability to then communicate with a stranger uh, through an app on your phone now is sort of the predominant way of communications among even people in junior high or elementary school. And so this connectivity, this access to information, this visibility of activism, I, I would imagine in many ways as you observed uh, students in the classroom, you've probably also observed an evolution in what that identity looks like. I'm just wondering if you could reflect a little bit, uh, both in terms of how that that activism has shaped students in your own community um, in the state of Florida, but also perhaps more broadly, what you see as distinct in the needs that students today might need from Tallahassee, from state assemblies to look out for their concerns and have their backs, um, which might be different from what students may have needed in the 80s or 90s in America. 
Well, I got to start by saying how inspired I am um, by these activism that these students are showing. Um, kids in 2018, they're just more aware than they were in the past. This access to information, uh, constant access to information, um, means that they are being exposed to issues um, a lot earlier, I think. That's one of the biggest changes. And the Internet affects, uh, having grown up in a digital age, these kids are socializing in different ways. They're making friends in different ways. They're communicating in different ways. Um, I think it's a bad idea to forget that they're still kids. Right? I mean, kids are going to be kids no matter what. Uh, they're not, I think, fundamentally different than, than people have, kids have been in the past, but they are socializing and organizing differently. Um, and this is not necessarily re relevant to your question, but as a society, we don't really know what uh, growing up on the Internet and, and totally changing those societal interactions is going to look like 20, 30 years down the road. Because um, it's happening so, in real time. So it's happening in real time. So, uh, you know, there, there are these movements to, like, maybe get kids off their phones uh, until a later age and some of these things. We talk about Internet addiction, social addiction, these kinds of things um, that do affect our kids. And in the classrooms, you also see, um, you know, cyberbullying where, where they're, they're learning in middle school and high school as you're growing up and going from transitioning from being a child to being an adult. You're learning um, empathy, right? You're learning hmm. what it means to be a human being. And so when you're learning those things through the filter of the Internet, it kind of changes the way you view things. And so I, I say all of this um, to point out that the students are aware and they are organized. And what gives me hope and optimism uh, is that this is going to translate, I can, I can hope, that this translates into votes. It translates into kids being aware at a younger age that their vote counts, their vote matters, particularly um, making them aware of the local elections, not just national politics, but That's local right. politics, That's right. um, and how much more their voice matters in local politics and how big of a difference they can make. Uh, my wife was telling me a story. One of her, her students, um, they, they're getting tested to death. They're getting tested over and over and over. And one of her students says, Miss Miss Heron, this is uh, crazy. This is so much. Can I go to the school board and just tell them? And she said, yes, yes, you can. Organize, get your friends out, go to the school board and tell them how this testing is affecting you. And the fact that these kids, this is in middle school. Wow. And the fact that these kids are asking these questions is really giving me hope that um, they will vote. And so if they vote, that means that politicians will have to listen to them. And that gives them a voice. Um, and that means that our legislatures will start to um, have to adjust where they stand on issues to accommodate um, these really inspiring young people. And of course, a lot of that activism you know, inspired by information um, has, uh, you know, as, as you have probably reflected, you and your wife, Teal, have probably reflected on all too much, has been um, catalyzed in many respects, at least in, in the national, uh, on the national stage, catalyzed by um, recent, recent uh, gun tragedies in Florida. I'm curious from your perspective, as a candidate, um, you, you're running in the 66th district for the Florida State House. Um, you have a very clear pro-education platform, but of course you're mindful of, of other 
cuts and aspects of the community. Um, to what extent do you feel that the both the shooting and sort of the gun debate that's ravaged um, the state assembly in Florida, but also the the shooting in the way that it sort of motivated students, um, which even if they're not voting today, students will always be your constituency as a teacher. Um, how has that sort of shaped your identity as a candidate? Has it forced you to be more explicit and vocal about gun control issues? Um, are you sort of disciplined and just kind of staying on message with other core areas and issues that you want your campaign to promote? Um, you know, there's a unique time to be a, an elected official in Florida, but perhaps even a more novel time to be a person that is looking to disrupt what elected officials have looked like in Florida. So I'm just curious where, where, how that interplay is, is kind of changing the way your synapses are firing with your candidacy. Well, as a teacher, I see it more as a teacher than as a candidate. Um, when this, when something like what happened in Parkland happened, um, I see the videos and I hear the stories that come out. And what happens in my mind is I visualize myself in my classroom with my kids. And I go, what would, I, what would I do? What would happen? What would I have to do? How would I keep my kids safe? You know, would I barricade my door? Uh, it's and it's just such a scary thought to put yourself in that position um, and to imagine what it was like there. And so, what is hope gives me a lot of hope is the fact that we've been able to keep these conversations at the forefront. That we haven't just moved on now. And that does go back to giving these kids credit, these these young people credit um, for uh, advocating for their beliefs. Um, you know, in terms of policy. Uh, and being aware of the other things uh, with the gun control debate in Florida. It, the Second Amendment is obviously a big deal. Um, and if we look at, as a society, where we stand on these things, we've agreed as a society that um, we don't want people to go out and buy bazookas or tanks or um, that we're going to heavily regulate and restrict the sales of fully automatic weapons. And so we've agreed as a society and legally um, – you know, as Antonin Scalia wrote in D.C. versus Heller, that the state has a right or has the ability to restrict um, gun ownership. And so as a society, we just need to debate where that line is. Uh, that's, I think, where a lot of it comes from. But we also can find places of agreement. So universal background checks are popular across the board. Um, and that's a place to start. We need to make these actions that are popular and that will make a difference. Um, we need to do those without poisoning them with uh, other kinds of political uh, pieces like trying to arm teachers or things like that. Just let's let's get the things that we agree on done um, because that's where we should be talking rather than trying to put a wedge between people for political purposes. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back with Alex, we're going to discuss how the unique makeup of Florida as a state changes the overall identity of representing the public in the state of Florida. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. 
Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MouthMediaSen. That's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N, at checkout. So, Alex, I, I know that as, as a candidate, um, you sort of have a, a very precise constituency. You know, in, in many respects, it is uh, the voting population of the 66th District of Florida. Um, but Florida has been a pretty unique state um, for, for quite some time in the history of our nation. You know, we, we like to celebrate as a country that there is a, a rich tapestry of diversity, of, of backgrounds, of cultures, of heritage, of socioeconomic levels. Um, but in Florida, what you see in the panhandle is incredibly distinct as what you see on the western coast where you live, which is incredibly distinct from what you might see in Orlando or sort of the, the Disneyland Universal Studios kind of world, um, which is very, very distinct from what you see in Miami and so on and so forth. And that that tapestry um as you mentioned a moment ago, can can give a lot of hope and optimism uh, for the future, particularly when you have students and, and young people um, that are connecting to one another in ways they've never been able to before, um, in part because of technology. And yet, that kind of provides some challenges um, from a lawmaking perspective, when you have such wide-ranging cultures, religions, um, political perspectives, uh, you know, that makes it hard to arguably to create some consensus. And in, in Florida, you know, there there are some overarching values that exist. But in, in many respects, um, when you launched into this race, and you chose to stand up as a public servant, um, I, you were also motivated by sort of the gaps, or the perceived gaps in values and sort of feeling um, uniquely uh, connected to our fellow countrymen and women, when you had 63 million Americans who voted for the policies and politics of our current President Trump, and then you had the remainder of America that that seemed really shocked and taken aback by what was really just a very jarring presidential cycle by way of the, the sort of barbs that were thrown between the two uh, major party nominees. And, and I'm curious... As a Florida candidate, as a Florida citizen, but really just as a citizen of the United States at this moment in time, where it feels like there are divisions that seem to be growing by the day in terms of um, political allegiances, who you support, and frankly, just cultural attitudes, how does one work to create bridges or inroads among those disparate communities or or is that just sort of an impossible task? And would you say that's not necessarily the role of an elected official? I'm just kind of curious that since we talk so much about diversity, it's very easy to also flip that and, and talk about that in terms of division. And I kind of just want to get your sense of how you particularly see that playing out in such a richly diverse place like Florida. Well, yeah, and Florida is a unique place. It's uh, a very interesting place to uh, get involved in politics and I don't think it's impossible to bridge these gaps. There are things that people do agree on, and I think it has to start with rebuilding trust in our public institutions. Um, people don't trust the, rep the the legislatures. They, um, you know, they don't trust the government. What we saw in the election in 2016 on both sides was a cry for change. Um, people wanted something different from the stand, uh, the status quo. And a lot of that, I think, comes back to campaign finance reform and the influence that special interests have uh, over the policy and, and lawmaking process. People are frustrated that their representatives 
uh, all too often seem to do what the special interests uh, demand and not what the people demand. And so one thing that we can do here is we can build that trust. Um, I want my constituents to know that they can trust me in Pinellas County. You know, I grew up picking up trash on the side of the road here. This is my home uh, as a Boy Scout. You know, this is this is my home. And uh, I'm not beholden to um, some outside legislative uh, agenda. My goal is to do what's best for my neighbors, for my community, for my friends, my my family. Uh, and that's where we have to come from and start with. And if people believe in your motivations, then it's okay if they disagree with you on policy. Sometimes that happens. And we're going to have real substantive policy debates, and we're not going to agree on everything. But if they think that you're coming from a position where you're advocating for them and you're you're doing your best for them, um, it doesn't have to be a vitriolic uh, partisan divide. But we, we have to rebuild that trust in our government, I think, first. That's where it's got to start. And and that trust is, you know, harkening back to to the, the views and voice of students and young people in general that gives you and, and myself and so many others optimism for how we shape our future, that, that trust almost seems to be the most violated at the the youth level. You know, if you, if you take a look at, um, you were mentioning a moment ago that a, a lot of the politics that matter the most are going to hit the road very locally. Um, but nationally, where you have a, swore, a swirl of, of headlines, not every day, almost every minute, um, about sort of the way our elected leaders are conducting themselves, the, the sort of values that they choose to pronounce or denounce, um, that is the kind of information that I would argue that it is sort of seeping into the pores of um, young people's imaginations today and in, in, in the way they see that this is A, how politics is conducted, B, this is how certain behavior is or is not accepted, and C, that this might just be the way things are if they were just born into this. Um, I, I think being born into a world where you're starting to get more politically aware or uh, or just woken up, um, where George W. H. W. Bush or Bill Clinton or even George W. Bush were presidents, leads you to a very different conclusion of what American politics could look like versus an era in which you're sort of waking up watching uh, President Donald J. Trump. Uh, convene his moral authority to lead as a president. And so I'm just wondering when it comes to repairing that sense of decency in politics um, or just making sure that there is veracity and there's faith and there's just credibility when it comes to an elected official and that they can trust you because you are not only from that community or of that ilk, but you've spent your life dedicated to the well-being of that community and you haven't always worn a cape or ever stood behind a podium you've just you've done it in the way you know it by connecting with those around you connecting with them in school after school and around the edges of school um, what do you say to them that are just witnessing politicians every day and mistrusting them they, they, it might be easier for them to trust you now because they know you as a teacher first but if they were to meet you and perhaps if your students younger brothers and younger sisters who are maybe not paying attention to politics yet but but come into to light in high school in a few years where you have already served for a little year a few years in the elected or sorry in the state house and they see you as a politician how do you actually create that sense of trust to that first-time onlooker? What what is what is Alex Heron going to do different to restore that sense of decency? Well, there's a power in optimism. I think our students are seeing that if they believe 
that they can make a difference and they fight and they put in the time and they work for it, that they can make a difference. And I hope to lead by example on that. I mean, I'm a teacher running for office because I believe I can make a difference because I believe if I put myself out there, I can actually make a change. And, um, you know, they don't have this negativity built in that people who have followed politics for a long time, I think you tend to get jaded, especially in this political environment. You know, I grew up um, influenced by the politics of the early 2000s and the late 90s. And um, you see just the massive divide in partisanship um, that's come about in the last 20 years. Um, I don't think kids necessarily think that has to be the status quo, which is so inspiring because I don't think it does either. You can get to a point where um, people can work together on things and make a difference if you fight for it. We don't have to just continue to um, do nothing when uh, a mass shooting happens. Uh, we can stand up and go and advocate. And these students realize they have a voice and they're using that voice, which uh, as long as that translates into getting in the habit of voting, which is what it has to be. Um, you know, these kids are going to run for office. They're going to change the world. And it's very, very exciting to see the optimism and the uh, fervor with which they're, they're taking themselves uh, and putting themselves out there. I got to ask you, um, you know, the some of my most inspired voices along the course of my, my time in high school, um, in particular, high school government teacher, uh, chaperones at debate tournaments, English teachers, uh, they remain formidable voices in my mind, even if I don't necessarily think about them day to day, uh, mostly when it reflects sort of why I took the trajectory that I took. So, you know, your students and your community are very lucky to have both you and your wife dedicated to investing in community and standing up for the educational potential of that community. Um, but you also spend a fair amount of time um, focused on wiring the classroom with a bit more of a technological infrastructure um, and a little bit more of a, a an under, depth of understanding uh, around the skills that are needed to sort of compete in a modern, more digital everything workforce. Uh, at the same time, it kind of seems that with the ubiquity of, of digital tools, tech companies or the tech sector has sort of turned into a, a voting block unto itself. Um, you know, just yesterday, uh, there were there was some news coming out of, around sort of data protection and data privacy as it related to the 2016 election. And putting those specifics aside, how it played out was a lot of backlash around Facebook and, um, you know, making sure that executives, if not the CEO, come testify about it. Um, stocks tumbled in the holdings of, of Facebook. Um, these companies will continue to be juggernauts, um, but they will be questioned in terms of how their products and tools are used. And as you try and encourage students to learn how to code or as you try and encourage classrooms to invest in tablets or um, state-of-the-art architecture so that way their students have the best tools at their disposal um, to be you know, modernized for the, the modern workforce, how do you sort of see that interplay between investing in the capacity of students to, to understand um, technology versus sort of the the increasingly dark cloud that seems to be swirling around um, the the technological sector. Well, I think part of it, one piece of that is access to technology, but I think one often overlooked piece of it, which is 
really what my job more is, is um, educating teachers on how this technology works. Um, my last uh, couple of years, uh, I taught computers in the classroom, and I got a chance to really talk to students about digital literacy, digital citizenship, understanding, so, like, setting up things like multi-factor authentication. It's it's great. I get to be a professional nerd now uh, when it comes <laughs> to you know uh, educational technology. But um, my parents, so I'm lucky, I'm fortunate. So I grew up. Uh, my parents are both computer engineers, and my dad. Uh, actually like works on modems and networking technology. So we got to beta test or alpha test, you know, our high speed internet when I was a kid. So I've always kind of been on the internet. And one thing my parents instilled in me from a very early age is anything you put on the internet is there forever. Um, I, I was, uh, you know, inculcated with a healthy, um, healthy fear <laughs> of, of putting myself online. Um, and I think that we need to make sure that we're focusing from an education perspective, that our teachers know um, what our kids' lives are like, that our kids are socializing online and what that looks like. And they need to understand um, how just the even the basics of just understanding how to spot fake news, right? How to think critically about the kinds of information you're seeing, how what, what kinds of sources can you trust? Um, this is goes to a core belief in the value of a good education in a democratic society. Um, if we, and that evolves, whatever our society requires, you know, that's when what the education system has to provide. And so at this point in our society's uh, existence, we have to make sure that our education system is evolving to meet the needs of these kids and, and ensure that they're hearing uh, from someone who has experience what they need to do to keep themselves safe um, and, and really think about the issues of, uh, of the internet and uh, web socialization. It's incredible to, to chat with you, not just in terms of, you know, hearing a little bit about your audacity for why you want to run for office, but, but also just the, the modern face of, of being an educator um, of investing in students has taken on so much, uh, so many additional threads when it comes to, you know, being a champion of them uh, in the classroom, but also being a champion of how they sift through the information in this world, given sort of the modern challenges of information day to day. So um, I very much appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, for, for folks that might be looking um, to get involved in the D66 race or, or to be supportive of your vision, uh, how could they do that? Well, we have a website. Uh, like I said, that would be pretty pretty basic thing in 2018 to make sure you have a website. <laughs> it's uh, alexheron.com, H-E-E-R-E-N, so A-L-E-X-H-E-E-R-E-N.com. I spell my name out because it's a name that's easy to misspell if you hear it. Um, <laughs> and sign up, you know, sign up to volunteer. Um, regardless of where you live, what I encourage people to do is to sign up to vote, register to vote, um, talk to your neighbors, get your friends to vote. Uh, voting is power. And we need to believe that we can make a difference. There was an election locally here where a city council race was determined by five votes wow. uh, on t last Tuesday. And so in local elections, your voice matters more uh, more than anywhere else. And so be aware of local issues and um, contributions. You know, we have to uh, try and raise some money to, to really put on a good campaign. So that would be uh, helpful, too, if anyone can contribute. That sounds awesome. You know, you know what? Some of your students, if they listen to this, are going to say, "You've got a website, but do you have an Instagram account? Do you have a Snapchat account? Keep up. You know, you're going to be modern, man." Yeah, yeah. I got a, I got a Twitter. So, you know, it's funny. Um, 
Facebook, uh, maybe I shouldn't talk about this, but Facebook, uh, I've always had kind of a healthy skepticism of Facebook, like I said before, um, especially given kind of what's been going on. Um, and so I actually gave up Facebook for a few years and it was great. Uh, you kind of have to get back into it to, to run for office at this point. So you can find me on Facebook, Alex Heron. Um, I have a Twitter, uh, Alex Heron FL. Uh, I do have an Instagram, but I don't, I don't post pictures nearly as often as I should. Maybe we'll get back on that. But <laughs> yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter and Facebook. That's where most of my content is. That's fantastic. Well, Alex, uh, thank you so much for joining American Enough. Uh, we're really proud of, of you leaning in here and, and everything that you've been doing, um, not just for the community in terms of evoking what they should and shouldn't be thinking about as they, they shape their own faith and future, but what you've done for, for students of your hometown all your life. Good luck out there on the trail, and uh, thanks for joining American Enough. Thank you so much for having me. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.